Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So we have uh, maybe 30 or 40 minutes, more time together, and uh, do you have something you'd like to bring up? Maybe you could tell me uh, what it was like to have that conversation with the other person. Did you enjoy that? Did you learn something? Anybody have any, uh, anything to report from that? Yeah. I'm currently trained to be a teacher of English as a second language. Uh-huh. And what you have just done is part of the pedagogy of getting students to actually communicate with each other when they're very afraid to do so. Yeah. Oh, good. It's very nice to be approved of. We all, we all love that, don't we? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it's a lovely step for people to take in, in a situation where they feel that they're very discreet people, but yet to sense that we're all in the same boat together. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was going to say it was nice to uh, have a dialogue with John here because we had sort of been nudging elbows for the last hour. And there was already a, a level of nonverbal. We just we had a nice, short, and sweet talk, but it was, uh-huh. uh, it was nice to feel that verbal communication with my fellow second. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, it was wonderful to connect, and I, I think your point that we must make our part of our practice Yeah. Well, in the light of what I was saying, if you think about it, you would conclude that all of your friends are Buddhists. <laughs> See what I mean? Like, they may not profess or say that they're Buddhists, but if you think about what Buddhism really is, or what it's really supposed to be about, who's not part of that, that you meet? So, so the feeling of being lonely is not in the circumstances, it's in your own heart and mind. 
and it can be overcome in your own heart and mind. You don't need for all your friends to become Buddhists for you to feel less lonely in relation to them in your Buddhism. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so everybody's included. Yes, in the back. Could you stand up so I can see you when you talk? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I felt a little uh, unnerved a little bit, not because I was speaking to you. That <laughs> 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 might have something to do. With. Um, we spoke about um, how I looked around and I couldn't exactly see the beauty in other people. Yeah. Yeah. You, did you all hear him? Yeah. That's important, isn't it? Because I think it is true. We're all like that, right? I mean, we all, I, mean, I think everybody would agree that uh, love and compassion are wonderful and really make a lot of sense, and we'd like that, more of that. I mean, very few people disagree with love and compassion. I hate that. I don't like love and compassion. <laughs> no, I'm against it. I mean, there are people who would say that, but they're really in the minority, you know very small percentage, less than 1%, my statistic, <laughs> of people. So, uh, so um, and yet, just like Eduardo was saying, and yet, we don't feel that. And, and then, and, and, and it's, it's kind of humbling when you look and you see, I know it's me, there's nothing wrong with these other people. You know, it's really me. I'm not able to, I'm not comfortable enough in my own whatever, my own life or my own, or I have a habitual point of view that makes me see things as separate or threatening or something like that. And I think we are all like that. It's not like, you're not the only one. I don't think so. I think we're all, we're all, we're all like that. So, there's, so, yeah. So, the thing is that it would be the wrong conclusion to draw that, oh, it's hopeless. What's wrong with me? I, the right conclusion to draw would, would be, I'm inspired to work with this 
And little by little by little, through patiently noticing it and aspiring to compassion and cultivating compassion, that's what this text is about, how to cultivate compassion, practices to work with this, little by little by little by little, uh, to the point where you become very patient with that attitude within yourself. And instead of having it be, damn, it's kind of like, okay, there it is. And, and this is what I need, this, it's this the compost that I need to develop more love and compassion. So you're on a path toward love and compassion more and more and more. And so you feel good. Even though you're not there yet, you feel like you're going there and you're not stuck. So that's what we all need. Because yes, this is, everybody has, this is the problem, right? This is the problem. We would have a kind of utopian world if everybody did not have this problem, right? But, but everybody does. Yeah, I'm sorry, you were about to say something. I was just that you um, made us do this. And um, many Zen centers that I've been in um, were constantly struck by actually how, how lonely and by oneself that one is made to feel very often. And you actually sort of, it's interesting that we haven't really introduced this kind of ritual. Uh-huh. Weeks ago, I was a Well, uh, this is one of the main practices in our everyday Zen groups. This is one of our main practices. Almost every time we meet, we talk to one another. If I give a Dharma talk, people don't ask me questions at the end of the Dharma talk. I ask them questions, and I ask them to sit in groups and talk. And we have a whole protocol. We consider it a spiritual practice to speak to one another honestly and from the heart. And it's something you have to develop over time. And uh, even though you you may be right that it's not done in Zen centers, but you know what? I think that it's, I think it is. I think it's, what I'm saying is I think that I didn't invent this. This is not my brilliant idea. I think that we all invented it. It's happening everywhere. And I'm not surprised that the Anglicans are doing it. And I'm sure a lot of Zen groups do do it. Maybe you haven't been around in a while, but I bet you a lot of them are doing it because this is something, love and compassion is something we are, as a species, awakening to. And we're all realizing how important this is. Communication, connection to one another. So I think that in all, everywhere in our lives, whether it's in business or in medical, wherever, this idea of talking together honestly and intimately as a healing practice and as one of the best educational tools is something that we're all realizing. I I actually got into it because I studied education. And I was so impressed when I read that, like they had did all these studies that showed that when somebody gives a lecture and tells all these brilliant things, nobody learns anything. When, 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 when people talk out of their own mouths these things that they heard in the lecture, when they say it and they make it their own, they learn it. So that's when I started doing this. This is maybe 20-some years ago. I realized. And so, so then we always do this. So I think it's an important... In, it's, in and of itself, it's a compassion practice. 
you know that would be a that would be a, a, a that would be a practice to, to have a friend and say okay like in fact I do this in a lot of our in a lot of our like uh, when we have um, Zen practice periods one of the things we do in our practice periods is we pair people up and during the eight weeks or whatever it is of the practice period we say at once a week you guys talk and we have a format for how it's done you know like there's a kind of a loose structure to it and the idea is that's part of the practice so you could do that you could say to somebody let's let's you and I talk in an organized way not just like how you doing and so on but like let's talk about our inner lives let's talk about what really matters to us most and let's do it for like a half an hour a week for the next month and we'll try to be disciplined about it you know really kind of get to get down to it and see what happens. And you would, you'll find that that in itself is a powerful compassion practice. Because we need, we, we need actually structured, that's what I was saying, you know, meditation or prayer, whatever it is, a meeting with a teacher, going to retreats. We, need, we do need some kind of structure because even though the basic practice is nothing other than living your life, that is the practice. But if we just do that and we don't have some structured artificial practice, We'll live our lives pretty much the way we're living them now, which is like, we don't know what's going on. You know? <laughs> Confused. It's not going well. So in order to really pay attention, we need all these external artificial structures. So the, and that could be one, one of them. But I'm glad that you enjoyed that. And, and I, uh, like I say, I would be really quite uh, shocked and surprised. Like I go around a lot of Zen centers, and I always do this wherever I go. In, in the Zen centers, and people don't seem like ter- no, but I mean they don't seem like seem like they've done it before, you know. But I don't know. Uh, we'll have to take a survey and find out. Is anybody anybody here from a Zen group where they do that? Where they talk in that way? Where they talk in that way? Yeah, right. So there's one. Yeah, are you two? Yeah, there's another one. See, there's one, another one. Yeah. So I I, I would be surprised. If, uh, I mean, classically, classical Zen style is that way for sure. But um, this is a new world and a new time, and so we have to adapt the style. Yeah. Be funny to you know, a little like in the cartoons, a little thought bubble over everybody's head. <laughs> 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 be funny. Uh, what's the place of that? You mean in Buddhist practice in general and Zen? Yes. Pra- uh-huh. yes. Well, it's all about that, isn't it? I mean, whatever whatever struggles we're having, 
ultimately are connected to our spiritual lives, right? So uh, in the practice that I do, um, I figure I meet with people one-on-one. That's a very classical practice in Zen, to meet with people one-on-one. And when I do that, I figure that my job is to um, listen to the person and try to understand the best I can what they're telling me and try to see in what they're telling me how the practice relates to that or can help them to work with it or see it better. So I think everything in our lives, you know, I think we're inherently spiritual beings. I mean, we have, we're the only beings on the planet, I often say, you know, we're the only beings on the planet that are capable of living unreal lives, right? There is no ant or bumblebee that can live an inauthentic life. They can't. Every bumblebee, every deer, every cougar, and every chrysanthemum is living a fully authentic life. But we can live a false and unreal life. Therefore, we're spiritual creatures. We have to find a way toward a real life, an authentic life. And so everything that happens in our lives, I think, relates to that. So whatever your problem may be, whether it looks like a psychological problem, an economic problem, this kind of problem, that kind of problem, it all relates to this fact of being human. So it all relates to our spiritual practice. And that's what makes life so interesting. It's fascinating and interesting, the things that happen to us and the way our lives go in such unexpected, beautiful ways, which sometimes we don't appreciate for decades, right? And so that's, that's the, I find that when, the back, when there's the background of spirituality for, behind you know, the foreground, which is your life, it changes what the foreground looks like. Just like if you put somebody standing in front of a black wall or a white wall or a green wall, they look different you know, because the background is different. So spiritual practice is like the background for every human life, I think. So yeah, everything that happens to us is part of it. Nothing's left out. How, how would you distinguish uh, quote unquote therapy? I mean, in the broad sense of uh, uh-huh. in terms of what you're, how, the way in which you're talking. Well, I don't know if I'm a good person to answer that because I'm not a therapist and I never visited a therapist. So I don't know that much about it, but uh, I mean, therapy, like say the practice that I do, has a lot of things in it that therapy doesn't have. You know, meditation, rituals, commitment ceremonies, uh, texts, spiritual texts, chanting. So, you know, none of that is in part of therapy. So, in, in other words, I guess, I guess that's the thing, that in therapy, I guess the practice is meeting with the therapist. That is the practice. You know, whatever you say, meet for an hour once a week. That is the practice, and I guess reflecting on your life, and in and in uh, in the practice that I do, uh, the practice is all those other things. A meeting with the teacher is one element of the practice, but it's not by no means, the, you know, the most important part of the practice. It's in a context of all these other practices. So, um, but you know, if you think of therapy as uh, human development. Uh, which is spiritual fundamentally, then, then in that way they're quite similar. Yeah. 
But you should ask somebody who's, like Michael, who's a therapist and also a, a Buddhist teacher. He probably, do you have any, want to say something about that? We don't have time. <laughs> so there you go. Look him up later right. when he has time, you know, and you have time. Yeah. yeah. Hi, John. Thanks for the email. It's nice to see you. Yeah. <clears throat> about um, the difference between um, having a, like wanting to practice and so practicing and practicing even when you don't want to like in other words when the feeling is in charge and when practice is in charge and taking and pulling the feeling along with it yeah. kind of the balance between those two yeah well uh, I do think that practice takes some discipline and discipline exactly means you do something anyway, even if you don't feel like it. <clears throat> but most disciplines um, change you, right? So when you do that for a while, you eventually, uh, <clears throat> eventually the discipline changes the feeling. So it's kind of like exercise. If people who have an exercise, uh, exercise regularly, they probably remember when they didn't used to exercise regularly and they would drag themselves to the exercise and they hated it and it was a pain and they usually didn't do it. And, but eventually they did it enough to where they got to the place where even when they don't feel like it and they do it anyway, it makes them feel better. Right? Probably many of you can attest to this. And it's just like that with spiritual practice. That uh, you know that you're committed to it. Um, it's kind of like a marriage. You might not feel like being married to the person on any given day, but you stick with it, mostly. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) And when you stick with it, even when you don't necessarily feel like it, it builds something beautiful, right? As you know. So it's, it's very much like that. Um, so, uh, you know, feelings come and go, don't they? I mean, feelings are always interesting and important to take notice of what am I feeling now. But one can't necessarily uh, stake one's life on the way one is feeling at any given moment because feelings are coming and going. I mean, human relationships are a very good example. Sometimes, I mean, people don't like to say this, but it really is true that sometimes you actually hate the people you love. You hate them. It's not like you're a little bit annoyed with them. You hate them on a given moment, you know. And people don't like to say that, but it really is true. So, but you don't act on that hatred. You, know, you, you say, well, I'm committed to this person, so I may hate them today, but I'll get over that. You know, and, I, and I'm going to make sure I get over that. I'm not going to let myself get run away with me. So you, working with our feelings, being honest about our feelings, and being able to work with them, and having some place to stand in our lives more rooted, stronger than our feelings while at the same time being honest about our feelings and sensitive to our feelings, that's one of the huge things about spiritual practice, I think. So that's a really beautiful and important question, I think. Yeah. But that's right. Most of us do things we feel, especially with spiritual practice. I mean, I don't know how many times somebody would say, you know, well, I, I haven't been coming to practice lately because I haven't felt well or I'm having a hard time and it's been hard for me to show up. I come when I feel like it, when I feel good. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the opposite. <laughs> when you're feeling lousy and you're in a mess, that's when you should be coming, you know? And the rest of the time, too. 
<laughs> oh, what was that? Was that Olin? Was that a dog? I thought it was a dog. The dog was like shocked suddenly. What happened to the dog? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Couple more, yeah. Um, I have a question of, about this daily practice. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I wonder what it, what what is it about sitting meditation? Yeah. That is that. I mean, as long as I've been sitting, which is not so long. Yeah. A few years and very intermittent. Um, I I I feel much more drawn to other physical practices, uh-huh. artistic practices, uh-huh. and there seems to be something about sitting meditation that is, um, certainly within like this community for sure, that, that it is, is, is different. It's, um, and yet you, you, you said that this daily practice, it doesn't have to be sitting meditation yeah. either, but I'm curious, like, what is it about that, that practice that you feel is different from other well, <clears throat> I think what characterizes a spiritual practice or a religious practice that's different from other things is that it's useless. In other words, you get nothing out of it other than the practice. <clears throat> when you think about it, right? It's, it's useless. It's, it's, in other words, it's in another realm. It's not a practical realm of your life. You can, I mean, art practice can be that way too. I think ultimately it is. But if you do art practice, you're making something and you can sell it or you can show it to somebody or you can, you know, whatever. But you can't get anywhere with meditation at all. There's no reason to do it other than just to do it. And prayer is like that too. You know, you don't really, I mean, unless, there are some people who pray for different things and they get them. (laughs) You know, like I pray for a Cadillac and they get a Cadillac and stuff like that. But... That seems somehow limited to me, you know. Uh, mostly prayer is not to get anything, right? Mostly prayer is just to express your relationship to something that's outside the books or off the books in your life, right? Something larger than your life. And meditation is the same. When you sit in meditation, you're not getting anything out of it other than your connection to something that's at the bottom of your life but yet is bigger than your life. It's the same with any spiritual. So I think that's, to me, that's what defines a spiritual practice. You don't get any good out of it, and it's totally useless. <laughs> yeah, and that's what makes it so great. Because we need the useless, right? A use, I mean, we go nuts with all the things in our lives that are useful, right? Don't you go crazy with everything that's so important and useful and has to be done and this and that and the other thing? To do something, this is useless, doesn't do me any good at all. It's so liberating. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> True, though, don't you think? I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. I have a cousin who spent seven or eight years as a Zen monk oh. in Shasta Abbey. Oh, yes. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> when he said that, I mean, it really shocked me because I assumed at the time that meditation went hand in hand with becoming a better person. And I've always felt that in addition to formal practice, spiritual practice, 
emotional growth. I, I don't understand how they can be spiritual growth without emotional growth. And, and that that is not necessarily something that comes with just simply sitting and meditating. I think it you're yeah. self-inquiry. I think you're completely right about that. That's right. And, and I think if that was the case uh, there, then they made a little mistake. An honest mistake, I'm sure. But, you know, because... And, and you know, you make a mistake like that because uh, you have a tremendous faith in the practice and in maintaining the practice. And so uh, with that faith, you might lose track of what is the actual purpose of the practice and what are we trying to do here. And that does happen. I mean, we all know that this happens in every single religion. I mean, if you think of religion as being something that human beings need for the fullness of their lives, and you think of what religion has been in many, many cases, it hasn't been that, right? So we know that spiritual practice and religious practice has an enormous potential to be not only not helpful, but even harmful. So we know that. So that's why what you said is so, so very, very important. Right. And I agree, yeah. So... Uh, for me, the meditation practice exists in the context of so many other things, a whole life. Precepts, you know, paramita practice, you know, generosity, compassion, love, uh, kindness, and so on and so on, many, many other practices. Uh, meditation supports those practices, and it's sort of the zero bottom line of all of them, but it is not a substitute for them. Yeah. Did, did, so he got out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and and where where is he now? Well, he's a lay person now. He has a family, uh-huh. and he had really challenging circumstances. You know, himself and his wife they adopted two boys uh-huh. and who were brothers, and they were born of a mother who was a drug addict. So right uh-huh. now, these teenage boys are in difficulty, and I'm sure that my cousin's many years of sitting and practice practicing are serving him in a certain kind of way that he gets to witness this, witness his sons, and knowing that there is so much that he can engage in, and that at the same time, there is a need to let go. Yes, I'm sure that his practice so uh, has helped helping him, yeah. Him. Yeah, and, and I, just, to, just to be clear, uh, you know, I know that a lot of the most senior monks at Shasta Abbey, uh, and they're good people, you know, I don't want to make it sound like there's a defective Zen place somewhere, you know. <laughs> no, I mean they're good. They're good people, and but these things do happen. You know, they can happen. They can happen anywhere. Yeah, we have to be, you know, realistic and honest about this. You know, there's, there's no like just do this and or this is the great thing or everything. Everything is good and everything is bad. Yeah. Oh, hi. hi. Um, so I have an interesting question. I, I had this person I met through <coughs> my um, healing work who did many years of Buddhist um, practice, Zen study, and was quite involved. And then he had a catastrophe in his life where his partner left him. And he, he, just, he just pulled away from everything. And, and didn't engage in the practice. And I'm just sort of wondering about that. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. The, 
strength and conviction and having those tools and using them when you're really down like that. What, I'm wondering why he, they weren't serving him or why. Mm. Well, that's also brings up another important point, I think. Sometimes that's part of what you go through. Total collapse, total darkness. <clears throat> and that's part of the, sometimes that's part of the path. It sounds like <clears throat> your friend went through that and came out the other side and, you know, is doing good work now. So sometimes it happens. Sometimes things happen, right, in our lives that are, uh, thank you, that are, that are devastating. And uh, <clears throat> because of where we are in our lives and in our spiritual path, we can't do anything other than totally collapse. And that's what we have to do. Totally collapse. And then something changes and something else happens. So it does, yeah, I mean, there's, a, as you probably know, a famous Christian uh, text on this, The Dark Night of the Soul, you know. Uh, St. John of the Cross uh, writes about the darkness as being a part of the path. Yeah, so it, it can happen to anybody, you know. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for coming. Sure. Um, I, I, in your setup, you were talking about um, that we're in a period of maybe um, a lot of uh, people in suffering in the world and things like that. And I was thinking about um, something that I saw a long time ago, which, which is there's this maximum amount of hunger you can feel like when you're truly hungry. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about your comment. And um, I was thinking about you know, back in time if I was you know, really just, I, I'd be like about five years past my day and uh, I'd probably die of a tooth decay and things like that. And I'm sort of wondering if you could comment on um, historically, like if there's a maximum amount of suffering. I don't want to sound like I'm massively depressed right now, right? I'm not. But, <laughs> Actually, what I said was, in this period of time, we think it's particularly bad. Actually, that, that's what I said. We think. Uh, whether or not that's true, I really don't know. And I think about this point. Uh, it's impossible. I think it's really impossible to know what someone who lived in the Middle Ages felt and thought. The texture even though you can read books written by people in the Middle Ages where they say what they felt and thought, but anybody who's written a book about what they feel and think knows that what you write about in the book about what you feel and think is not exactly the same as what you feel and think because it's too nuanced and too textured for that. By the time you write it down, it's already you've already abstracted it. So therefore, like you know, we think the world is coming to an end at some point, so did they. They didn't need fossil fuels to be convinced that the world was coming to an end soon. They had predictions and they believed them, you know. So we're not the first generation of people who has the idea that the end is near. Uh, people have always had that idea, actually. 
So it's impossible to tell, you know, whether uh, in many ways, I would say in most ways, the world is much better off, you know, than it was then. The much less suffering and dread and fear and horror in the world now for more people than ever. At the same time, we have these other kind of spiritual malaise and alienation and so on and so on. So it's impossible. I think it's impossible to compare different eras. That's what I think, anyway. Yeah. Norman, can you, um, can you say a little bit about it in your last, in that article, good article, you talked about, uh, I was struck by how important it was to me to talk about trusting yourself, trusting, always trusting yourself. Yeah. And, and as in, take a lot of it, trusting my own moves. Yeah. 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 Well, I I agree that. Um, yeah. If you if you have a heart of love and compassion, caring, you know, about everybody, that includes oneself, right? You care about yourself. You're compassionate toward yourself for sure, and then <clears throat> you're trusting. What happens instead of saying that shouldn't have happened. There's no such thing as that shouldn't have happened, you know? I mean, if it happened, it actually happened. There it is. It's powerful. Something is. It's a lot more powerful than it isn't, right? The thing that shouldn't have happened, happened, and now that other possibility doesn't exist. Why would you be involved with that? You're only involved with what exists. So you trust whatever happens. That's your place to stand is what is. So you trust your life. You trust life, even when it doesn't go the way you wish it had. You trust it. And that means you're in the middle of this life that you're living, so it means you trust yourself. Does that mean you'll never make a mistake? No. But you trust yourself anyway, and if you make a mistake, then you trust what you're going to do about that mistake now. I think we all have to feel for ourselves, you know. They're there, you know. It's okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we have to feel for ourselves and uh, care for ourselves, but not at the expense of others. This is the craziness. I only care about myself. I don't care about anybody else, or I care about myself way more than anybody else. That's crazy, right? Where's that going to get me? No, I care about myself just as much as I care about everyone, the same amount. And so I trust what happens, I trust myself, I trust my life. And then I live it with whatever happens. So I'm, you know, I make plenty of mistakes. And I, the thing that I really hate, that's just terrible, is I hate it when I hurt people. And I do that. without. I mean, I never intend to hurt people. But I do it without intending it, and that's terrible. You know, to, to see somebody who thinks I said this or thinks I did that or thinks I had that motivation or this motivation and I know that they're hurt and I know that for them it's my actions that hurt them regardless of my intentions, that's terrible. And sometimes it's because I wasn't careful enough. So that's a mistake. So then I try to do better, but probably I'll never stop making those mistakes. 
but I have to trust myself anyway. How else can I live? How else do you live without trusting what you do and who you are? What's, what's the alternative? You'd be paralyzed, right? Yeah. Thanks for coming, everybody. And thanks to Center of Gravity for having me. Uh, yeah, you, you really are all beautiful. Take care. See you. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Norman. And uh, we're going to start in here for those of you who are signed up for the weekend uh, at 9 o'clock. So please make sure you arrive about 15 minutes early to get set up. And then maybe a few people who uh, can stay a little bit late to help set the room up uh, for tomorrow. If you could just stay for 10 minutes, that would be great. Yes? Any chance you would play that bowl as it's burning something? Um, you'd have to convince my son and he's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> he's only one of those. Yeah. <laughs>